Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, and this week we are wrapping up our series on the common misconceptions present in each of the CFP uh, main curriculum topics. Uh, And the last one we have to do on our list is good old general principles. We save the best for last. So without further ado, let's get into it. Now, the first big misconception that I have students come to me about all the time in the general principles curriculum has to do with the financial calculator. Uh, which is really no surprise since the financial calculator is such a cornerstone, important piece of the CFP curriculum. And one of the most confusing aspects of it comes right at the beginning when you're learning how to use the financial calculator. And that is where to put the negatives and positive cash flows for present value, future value, and payment. A lot of students get confused about when they should make a payment negative, when they should make a present value positive, when to make the future value negative, and vice versa. It can get very uh, confusing as far as uh, what is what and how to keep things straight. And I'm here to tell you it doesn't actually matter as long as you're consistent with your perspectives. Because the way to think about it is it's all just representing cash flows and the direction of money movement. Now, think about it this way. If you take a loan from a bank, that cash flow would be positive for you. You know, you are receiving a loan from a bank, they're writing you a check, you are getting an injection of money that is a positive cash flow for you. So for you, that would be a positive present value. Now, if you do it from the bank's perspective, though, that would be a negative cash flow. They are paying money out. That is money leaving their account. And so if they were to enter it into an equation, they would enter it as a negative present value. And then similarly, when you start making payments on that loan, that payment for you would be a negative payment because you're writing a check to that bank every single month. So that represents negative cash flow from your accounts. But from the bank's perspective, it would be a positive cash flow. They are receiving those payments. So that payment would be a positive number when they entered into the calculation. So the same thing happens with your calculator and the way you run these calculations, depending on if you're doing it from the recipient's perspective uh, or the person who's making the payments perspective, it doesn't matter which one you choose so long as you are consistent with that direction of money. Now, if I made my present value positive and then I made my payment positive, I would end up getting the wrong answer because I'm crossing my perspectives there. I need to make sure that I'm still doing an apples to apples comparison and my cash flows are staying consistent in the direction that they are moving in. So it doesn't matter so much whether you choose your first number to be a positive or you choose for it to be a negative. You're going to get the same answer regardless, so long as your relative cash flows in the payment and the future value entries 
uh, correspond in the proper way to whatever your first entry was. So don't sweat it so much about figuring out uh, what the first one has to be. Instead, what I want you to do is focus on being consistent. Put yourself in the shoes of one of the individuals in the transaction, you know, put yourself in their perspective and think about how the money flows and the direction uh, of that money and keep that in mind as you're entering in the present value, future value and payment. As long as you do that, the final answer is still going to be the same dollar amount. So don't worry too much about the positives and negatives. Just be consistent. The next most common misconception with general principles, I have to say, is the code of ethics and the standards of conduct. Namely, in how serious students uh, take this piece of the curriculum. Um, and I don't blame them. It's really easy to overlook it, you know, think, oh, it's just like an employee handbook. This stuff is obvious. You know, of course, I'm going to uh, treat my clients with integrity uh, and be have my fiduciary duty. All of this is obvious. I don't need to study this. And so they end up sleeping on it and not opening and reading the code of ethics at all. And then come test day, they get rocked by this section because it does make a pretty hefty section of the exam. Uh, last I checked, I think it's something like 8% of the exam can be from uh, the code of ethics and the various other CFP uh, documents. Uh, like the procedure rules and whatnot. So, uh, you know, they don't they don't take it seriously. And then it comes time to exam day and they get these very, you know, specific questions that really get into the minutia of the code of ethics and the standards of conduct. And they end up getting them wrong because they just did not take it seriously enough. So what I really recommend every student do uh, as you're preparing for the exam is to print out the code of ethics and standards of conduct and keep it on your bedside night table. And you should be reading through the code of ethics at least once a week in the months leading up to the exam. You know, maybe even bump it up to twice a week as you get closer to your exam day. Because the questions in it do get very specific, like how many days do you have to respond to a censure? Um, you know, what happens if you get a DUI? Uh, how do you appeal a ruling from the CFP board? You know, what order do you have to do things in? And it's the sort of things that you might think is just, you know, easy, no brainer type stuff when you're reading through it. But when it comes to testing, and you're under the gun and, you know, you have the clock ticking away. These questions are actually much more difficult uh, than they actually first appear. So do not sleep on this. Really put some solid effort into it. Really take this section seriously uh, because it is super, super important. Now, I get it. It's not the easiest document in the world to read. You know, it's pages and pages of legalese, fine point print, very dense, boring stuff. You know, that's why I recommend keeping it on your nightstand, because I guarantee you, 
You'll never need Ambien or any other sleep aids ever again if you just read this document before you go to bed. It'll put you to sleep right away. Um, so it is difficult to get through. I do understand that. So at the very least, what I would recommend is at least read through the roadmap uh, to the Code of Ethics. Now, this is a document that the CFP board put together a couple years ago, and I honestly think it's one of the best uh, pieces of literature the CFP board has put out ever. Um, the roadmap is great. It takes the Code of Ethics, it really breaks it down, it makes it way more digestible. Um, there's lots of graphs and figures and, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, tables and uh, visuals that really helps you uh, make sense of what it's actually talking about, and it's much easier to read. So, at the very least, if you struggle with the code of ethics itself, at least break out uh, the roadmap to it, and it's a much easier read. Now, if even that is, uh, you know, too difficult, it's still uh, hard for you to get through that, you know, you have trouble reading through uh, that, that document. Uh, what I'd also recommend is a couple years ago, myself and Mike Long actually put out about a, I think it was about an hour and a half long, uh, YouTube video where we go page by page through the code of ethics, um, the standards of conduct. And we talk about the most important aspects of every part of the document. We literally go page by page, say, okay, this paragraph is very important. Make sure you pay attention to this. Uh, you know, take a look at how they uh, phrase this uh, line here. Uh, that's some important phrasing, so make sure you pay attention here. So uh, if you're a more visual uh, type learner, then I definitely recommend you head over to our YouTube page. Just search uh, Biff Boston Institute of Finance on YouTube and it should come right up. And it's uh, it's a it's a long video because it's a long document, but it is a really great way to get some hands-on experience with the code of ethics and really uh, get sink your teeth into it and get an idea of what the most important aspects are. So, first and foremost, make sure you print that document out, keep it on your nightstand, read through it at least once a week. Uh, then after that, you got the code of ethics, the roadmap to it. Um, you know, that's the easier read. It doesn't have as many details in it, but if you're not going to do anything else, at least do that. And then finally, if you're uh, looking for that more audiovisual uh, type uh, learning experience, head on over to our YouTube channel and check that out. All right, my final tip for uh, common misconceptions with general principles is back to the calculator, another calculator misconception, uh, and that has to do with when to use begin mode and end mode. Uh, this is probably the second most common question I get about uh, calculator questions on uh, why students get a question wrong is because they mixed up the modes. So first off, let's just talk about what begin mode and end mode even indicates on the calculator. Um, what that setting does is it tells the calculator if the payment is happening at the beginning of the period or the end of the period. So if you're doing it in a monthly time frame, it's at the beginning of the month or the end of the month. And if you're doing it on an annual time frame, it's at the be uh, beginning of the year or the ending of the year. 
And why that is important is because it tells the calculator how to compound interest. You know, if you deposit $100 in a bank account on January 1st, you are going to have more money in that account at the end of the year than someone who deposits $100 into that bank account on December 31st. You know, you're just going to have a full year for that interest to accrue. And uh, on smaller time frames, it maybe not might not be as noticeable. But when you get to the longer time frames, like we're talking about uh, a 30 year mortgage, you know, it starts compounding and compounding, and compounding, and that effect grows and grows and stacks on top of each other. So the larger the payments, the longer the time frame, the more noticeable an effect it is going to have on your final answer. So it's very important to be in the right begin mode or end mode, uh, depending on uh, what you are doing in the calculation. Now, in most calculator uh, situations, um, the question is going to make it obvious for you. You know, they are going to say in the question itself, you know, this payment takes place at the beginning of the month, or, you know, they are making a deposit at the end of the year, or they need to take a withdrawal, uh, at the beginning of the year. And you just look, you know, what does it say in the question itself? RTFQ, you know, does it say it's taking place at the beginning or does it say it's taking place at the end? Um, however, sometimes it's not as clear. You basically have to use common sense and real world experience uh, in order to infer if the calculation is going to be in begin mode or end mode. So, for example, when dealing with college education type questions and we're dealing with calculating how much college is going to cost, we want to be in begin mode, even if the question doesn't explicitly say so. Why is that? Why do we know it's in begin mode? Well, because you have to pay your tuition at the beginning of the year. The college is not going to let you take a whole bunch of classes and then decide, hey, you know what? I don't actually want to pay. No, they, the bursar is going to be calling you up, looking for that tuition payment. Otherwise, they're not going to let you register for class. So for the college calculations, we always want to be in begin mode, even if it doesn't explicitly say so in the question. Same with things like, you know, living expenses, you know, so-and-so is on a fixed income, they're living off of their investments, uh, and they are going to need $10,000 a year uh, in order to buy food and clothes. Well, is that begin mode or end mode? Well, it's got to be begin mode because they can't go a full year without eating. They need to take that money out at the beginning of the pay period so that they have that money available in order to make those various purchases. Now, most of them are common sense like that. You know, if you just think about, you know, when do I need this money? Do I need it at the beginning of the year, the end of the year? Uh, an example of an end of year type situation that's obvious is someone wants to give Christmas gifts to their grandkids. You know, someone is going to be giving a thousand dollar Christmas gift to each of their grandkids. Well, when does Christmas take place? Christmas takes place at the end of December. So we're going to want to be in end mode for a calculation like that. But uh, there are a couple situations that are not as obvious. Uh, the big one being things uh, such as mortgage and car payments. Now, most people would think that a mortgage or a car payment 
would be in begin mode because we generally make our mortgage and car payments on the first of the month or, you know, maybe you have it deferred to the 15th of the month, what have you. Um, if, if it's in the middle like that, you generally default to the beginning because you need the money available. So most people would think like with a mortgage or a car payment, you would be in begin mode. But the opposite is actually true in those situations. The reason being is that when you take a mortgage or a car loan, you don't actually make a payment right then and there. It's not like I get a check from my bank for a mortgage for my mortgage that I take out and then I immediately turn around and write them another check for that month's mortgage payment. You wait until the next month to make your first payment. And so what that effect is, is you're effectively paying the previous month's payment uh, when you make that payment on the first of the month. So even though the payment itself is taking place on the first of the month, it's really for the previous month's balance. And so because of that, when we enter those into the calculator, we actually want to be in end mode because it's taking place at the very end of the cycle. And it's even such a far end of the cycle that it's bleeding over into the next month. So those are the ones that aren't as obvious, so you just gotta keep that in mind. There are a couple ones like that where it's not so common sense, and as you come across those, you'll just learn those, and you'll keep those in your back pocket and get those questions right. Now, the final point I wanna make with begin and end mode is there are situations when it does not matter. Because like we said, begin mode and end mode tells the calculator when the payment takes place. But the thing is, if there is no payment happening, it does not matter. Anytime you have a payment of zero, it doesn't matter if you're in begin mode or end mode, you're gonna get the same answer regardless because the amount of interest that accrues on zero is going to be zero no matter what. So don't sweat begin mode or end mode if there is no payment in the first place. So that wraps up uh, my tips and tricks for general principles, some of the most common misconceptions students uh, have that they bring to me and uh, I help them out with. So I really hope this series has been helpful for all of you guys. Uh, I really hope that uh, we cleared up a lot of misconceptions and you guys won't fall into these pitfalls as you study for your exam. Uh, if you'd like more content like this, definitely let us know, write into us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And you can check out all of our previous episodes at biffbytes.com. Thanks everyone and study on. Mm -hmm.